We've been talking a lot about seasons with spring here, as you know, and, and uh, it's always nice having a little bit of the change of seasons. We don't really get a whole lot of that in Florida, but we definitely have hot and hotter. So uh, we do see that change. Perhaps one of the most enjoyable aspects of, of agriculture is the changing of the seasons. Our text is in an agricultural setting today, as most of the Bible was, Old and New Testament. But farming is all about seasons. When I talk about that, I'm not talking just the weather changing. I was fortunate to have been raised on a family farm, had many blessings in that. And as spring comes, not only does the weather change, but your farming season changes. You begin with working on the equipment to get it ready to go in the field. Then as it gets a little warmer and the ground thaws out up north, you till the ground to get it ready for the seeds. Then after that's tilled, then you get the planting equipment out. You go put the seeds in the ground for the small grain usually first, and then you'll start working on tilling the ground for the, for the row crops, for the corn and the soybeans, and you'll use completely different equipment for the corn and soybeans than you did from small grains, so you're fixing things again. And it isn't long after you get in the corn and the soybeans that by that time now the small grains are sprouting out of the ground and starting to grow. Now you've got to get out the spray equipment. You've got to get ready to treat for pests and for weeds and other things. So I think you kind of get my point that the seasons of farming are always changing through the year you don't get a whole lot of time to get bored. Each one of those phases takes approximately two weeks as you move to the next phase. I don't remember a, a time, really, that Dad worked the same job day after day. Everything was always a change growing up. It's a wonderful life. But farming is also incredibly stressful. Massive amount of monies are poured in for the sake of growing a crop. They're called input costs. I remember there was one point when I was a teenager that the dad had had to get a $100,000 loan in order to put in the crop. That was just for what they consider expendables. That's seed and fertilizer and fuel, repairs for equipment. That doesn't include the tractors and the combines and, and the other equipment or the land that you have to either rent or purchase. That's way back in the 80s. 30 years ago, all those costs for putting in a crop. You know, all that money stands out there on the field. You start to see it grow. And then the wind howls. The sky grows dark. Then you hear the weatherman say, Hail. With all that money out there standing in grain, that fertilizer and seed now expended, I don't care how strong a person you are, I don't care if you're a believer or an unbeliever, that's enough to bring any man to his knees. The stakes are that high. In fact, I'm personally convinced that one of the reasons that 
the farming communities and, and the Midwest lag behind in unbiblical ideas like atheism and others, the reason they generally lag behind is in that breadbasket of the Midwest and those cotton fields through the South, uh, those people realize that they're not in control of the weather. God is. After Rita and I had dinner this week with Fred and Penny, Kenny, uh, Fred lamented a little bit uh, about a lot of the states up in, or, or all the churches up in uh, New England. They're generally emptying out. And being a retired teacher, he naturally noted you know, the negative influences of some of the liberal universities up there. You see, by comparison to the predominantly farming communities, the states that are to the far west, such as California, or way up in the northeast, the old industrialized northeast, those are the ones that foster the liberal uh, universities, by the way, like Berkeley, Yale, Harvard. In comparison to the farming communities, these areas have made a monumental mistake. Through their superior intellect and their empirical observation, their systematic investigation, they've arrived at the scientific conclusion that the food that they put into their mouths arrives in the back of a Walmart truck. Farmers realize it doesn't. Your and my physical sustenance comes through risk, comes through hard work, and it's no different from the manna that fell from heaven to feed the Israelites. God's in control. Our food supply rests in his hand. Psalm 135 says, Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. It is he who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightning for the rain and brings forth the winds from his storehouses. So the farmer knows he has no control of the weather. And the stakes are just as high for Boaz. Now remember, Israel had just come out of a very prolonged famine at this time. Each year Boaz would plant his diminishing reserve of seeds, the ones he couldn't eat, he put them into the ground of the hope that God will send enough rain for them to grow. Just like the farmers today. You wait and then you pray. You wait and you pray. But there comes a season in farming when you've taken the sickle out and you've removed the grain from the field and you bound them in sheaves. You're moving the grain towards the storehouse and the greatest amount of the risk is removed called harvest. It's called bringing in the sheaves. Boaz has taken the sheaves into his possession and now all he needs to do is thresh out the grain. It's a celebratory time. You're emotionally relieved. You're joyous. You're happy. You're thankful to God that he provided the rain, provided the circumstances to have a harvest. This is the heart of Boaz in our text today. Ruth chapter 3, God has provided. And though the work isn't finished, it surely isn't finished, Boaz is merry. He is, now has the opportunity to relax emotionally. And in chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Then Naomi, Ruth's mother-in-law, said to her, 
My daughter, shall I not seek security for you that it may be well with you? It was customary for parents to play matchmaker in this culture. And the security here is is the same word as rest. This is what Naomi wants for Ruth. She wants rest and security. It's, in fact, the original prayer that she had in our text in chapter 1 for her daughters-in-law. In In chapter 1, verse 8, if you remember, it said, Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you've dealt with the dead and with me. May the Lord grant that you may find rest, each in the house of a new husband. Remember, they had been widowed. Her prayer for them was security and rest. Security and rest would have been the desire of any widow in this culture. And the prospect of Boaz as a husband offers both of those. He was kind and honest, financially stable, strong to work. He was self-confident. Most important, he had a powerful faith in God. I'm going to step out on a limb here and propose that this is still the desire of every Christian woman who is seeking marriage. Certainly there may be an exception. But young men, I'm speaking to you here today. If you're seeking marriage, you're seeking to honor God, to find a Christian woman, you need to strive to display these qualities that we've seen in Boaz. And if you do that, you can expect that your Christian wife is going to remain committed to you in a long haul. It's what a woman wants. Stability. Notice that Boaz's physical qualities, they're not even mentioned in the text. In fact, we know by comparison to Ruth, he's much older. He's probably 50. She's probably maybe late 20s, early 30s. But he's the type of man who's gentle, he's providing. When danger comes knocking, he'll stand in the doorway. And to be completely honest, I don't think the typical woman... Again, one, a Christian woman who's seeking marriage, is all that concerned about how extremely handsome you are. I don't think it matters a whole lot if you're five foot six and 140 pounds. What a woman wants is a man who exhibits these qualities. He has a confident personality. He's humble in spirit, trusting in Christ, trusting in God, and fearless when danger comes knocking on the door. Men, as you seek a flourishing marriage, you need to be the type of man that will offer security and rest to your wife and family. That's Boaz. Of course, Naomi would have been first in line to claim Boaz as kinsman redeemer. But she doesn't think primarily about herself. Instead, she thinks rationally. She also thinks of the best interest of everyone. So rationally, Ruth has rapport with Boaz. She's been working with him, right, in the field. She's been there every day for two months. He and his crew have gotten to see who she is. She's been hardworking. She's demonstrated her diligence. Rationally, Ruth's already proven her loyalty to Naomi 
by following through on that oath, oath to provide for Naomi. So improving Ruth's wellness is only going to improve Naomi's, right? When Naomi's looking at this, things go better for Ruth, they're going to go better for me. I always have. Rationally, let's face it, Ruth was much younger and probably more desirable for Boaz. Perhaps most important of all, if you're going to petition a man like Boaz to fulfill the biblical responsibility as kinsman redeemer to provide a descendant to the deceased Elimelech to keep the family name going, if you're going to ask someone to step into that role, you probably should offer a widow who can actually have children. Right? Naomi had said previously she was too old to have children. So the rational choice is for Ruth to step in. Um, for everyone involved, she's the obvious candidate. That is why Ruth ends up being the one stepping into the picture here instead of Naomi. There would have been no possibility for descendants at the age that Naomi was. So Naomi is the Jew in the picture. Uh, the Jewish woman, of course, Boaz is a Jew as well. But Ruth isn't. She's a Gentile from the land of Moab. Naomi knows the traditional customs. She knows how things work in Israel. And she provides here very specific instructions to Ruth. Look in verse 2. Now, is not Boaz our kinsman, with whose maids you were? Behold, he winnows barley at the threshing floor tonight. Wash yourself, therefore, and anoint yourself, Put on your best clothes and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. Tonight is Boaz's turn at the threshing floor. Farmers took turns at this desirable location. Uh, here's a photo of one. It typically consisted uh, of a circular area with a very hard-packed ground that you could collect the seeds up from afterwards. It's a hard-packed base. It's often elevated up in the air so the prevailing winds that were to come off of the Mediterranean Sea in the evenings would catch the chaff and carry it away. So it's elevated. And next slide. These are the tools. On your right there, you'll see a winnowing fork for lifting up the chaff. In the back is a sled for threshing out, crushing out the grain, and then there's a sifting pan for fine separation. Next slide. This is how the threshing sled would work going around in this circular area. It'd be pulled by oxen, and there'd be usually a man or, or another worker, or sometimes even children, would sit on this sled to give it weight. And it was designed in a way that as it was pulled, it would crush up the grain and separate and just make this whole mash of straw and grain and, uh, and stock. The individual could do this by hand. We know that Ruth did this. Remember when we studied previously, she had been doing this by hand. This wasn't going on yet. The threshing floor had not been opened, but she was getting her daily rations and doing this. But it's very, very labor-intensive and dirty to do it by hand. To have it pulled by an oxen like this, you can do a whole lot more in a shorter period of time. A wise farmer who is concerned about the productivity of his working animals in this regard would not put a muzzle on his ox while it was threshing out the grain. He wanted that ox to be able to work. Next slide, please. This is the winnowing fork. 
It's used to stand in the middle and toss up this crushed mixture together uh, into the air, straight up, so that the wind would carry the light chaff and carry it away, and what you'd have drop down then are the heavier seeds. That's what you would have remaining. Uh, they would fall straight back down, and as a result, you can see there, you would have mostly a pile of grain and some light chaff. Uh, that's what you'd get the sifting pan out for. You'd separate into just the grain and you'd put into sacks for storage. That is the basic process of threshing. So Ruth was instructed to clean up and then watch for Boaz to finish his evening work. It was his turn at the threshing floor. And then he'd retire from his work of the day. He'd get cleaned up. He'd get ready for supper. He'd be happy, of course, that the harvest was going well. And he'd have a full stomach. So, you know, life is good, really, nap time. That's what she'd be waiting for, for Boaz. And Ruth was also to make herself attractive. That's a no-brainer. A bath, perfume, some nice clothes. Who wouldn't do that today if they're out dating someone? If, you, if you're in a relationship, whether you are seeking to be married, even after you're married, I would hope, you're going to clean up. You're going to put on some nice clothes. You're going to put on some perfume. You're going to be clean. Some commentators said that uh, she couldn't have any better clothes or raiments, that uh, she was too poor. Uh, I don't agree with that. She'd been working now for two months. She'd been doing pretty well. I think she could have taken part of that grain and, and if she wanted to, exchange for some better clothes or some best clothes. Um, I think she could have. And these best clothes, that's a curious word. Some translations say cloak. I don't like the idea of that word because it, it gives that idea in our culture as concealing. That she wore a cloak. Um, I don't think that's right. Ruth wasn't wearing a parka. It wasn't wintertime, all right? She wasn't wearing a parka. Um, the translation raiment, which some use, that's, that gives the idea of fashion wear, fitted attire. Um, that's a good translation. Uh, the root word of Hebrew, the Hebrew word in that projects the idea. This is the word that is used originally. It projects the idea of draping an object with a cloth in a manner by which the covering assumes the object which is beneath it. That's what is implied in the text. Perhaps you could liken it to wrapping a Christmas gift that isn't in the box. You know, you got the little kids at home and they're going to get dad a hammer. And you say, well, wrap that up. And they grab the hammer, they don't get a box, and they wrap it all up, and they have the head there and everything, and they hand it to dad at Christmas, and he looks at it, and he's like, hmm, wonder what that is. You've wrapped it, but you haven't concealed what is the gift. Ruth didn't intend to seduce Boaz here, but certainly like anyone who would be going out to meet a potential mate, she wanted to impress him. She wanted to impress him. Any of us would do this. In verse 4, Naomi instructed her, It shall be when he lies down that you shall notice the place where he lies, and you shall go and uncover his feet and lie down. Then he will tell you what you shall do. Ruth said to Naomi, All that you say I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor, and she did according to all that her mother-in-law had commanded her. 
from time to time you're going to hear a person say that the phrase uncovering feet has been used as a euphemism for sexual references. That's true. It has been used as a euphemism in remote situations. Not here. This word is used five times in the Bible. Each time, guess what the word feet is designated as. Feet. Yeah, every single time. Absolutely nothing in the context of this passage or the Hebrew language suggests anything other than the fact that Ruth laid down and placed herself at his feet. I consulted numerous sources along with several reputable theologians, including Charles Ryrie and John MacArthur, and none conclude this scene indicates anything sexual is occurring here. What sources do suggest is that our sexually deviant culture will seize any opportunity that they encounter to superimpose on God's word the promiscuous immorality of our day. That's what people want to see in the scripture as to justify their own behavior. What we also know uh, from ancient Hebrew culture is that a woman placing herself at a man's feet is symbolic of voluntarily putting herself in submission to him. That's something that modern liberal Americans detest. That's why they will not accept the correct interpretation. They detest the thought of anyone submitting themselves to anyone else, especially a woman. The Apostle Peter said to women, this is in 1 Peter chapter 3, your adornment must not be merely external, meaning not only external, braided hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses. Let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, in the former times, former to what? Former to Peter's times. We're talking Old Testament. He says, in the former times, in the same way, the holy women also, esteemed women, who hoped in God, used to adorn themselves being submissive to their own husbands. That's how the holy women of former times who hoped in God behave. And it says they're precious in the sight of God. The idea, though, of submission, now that offends people. That will really offend people. But Jesus himself personally demonstrated to his followers that they reached the highest echelon of Christianity by willingly submitting themselves to serve another person. That's the tops, according to Jesus. This is what Ruth is offering to Boaz by her actions of lying at his feet. She's presenting herself as his servant. And that's exactly, as we arrive at verse 8, what her spoken words declare. In addition, history records in the Arab world that spreading a garment over another is representative of marriage in that culture, the covenant of marriage. Even in Israel, we find uh, Ezekiel, uh, as he describes God himself, this is in chapter 16, verse 8, by the way, of Ezekiel. So you can note this if you want to look at it yourself. In this same way, God describes himself 
as spreading his covering over Jerusalem as symbolic to his covenant devotion to her. That's what it's symbolic of. A covenant relationship, in this case with Ruth and Boaz, marriage. This was traditional behavior. And by reading the text, we know that this all represents activity that would have been easily identified uh, as traditional behavior. Naomi informed Ruth after informing, uh, after instructing her. He told she, excuse me. Naomi told her to do this, and that Boaz would then recognize the proposition, and she was to wait on Boaz's further instructions. That's what the text says. He will tell you what to do after she does this act. Boaz would recognize her proposition, or her, and then provide additional details. This was a Jewish custom. He certainly would have been familiar with it, and he then will have the opportunity either to accept her proposal as him being the kinsman redeemer, to redeem her as a widow, or he would reject. That would be his two options. In verse 7, when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain, and Ruth came secretly and uncovered his feet and lay down. Now Boaz is full, he's satisfied, he's laying next to this big heap of grain that God had provided for him. He's happy, he is both eaten and and drunk his his fill, both. So the question's asked, why did she come secretly at night if there's nothing improper going on here? That's the question posed. But the answer is very simple. Ruth came to him secretly at night to spare Boaz any societal pressure. A widow who has a legitimate claim to a kinsman redeemer was was given the opportunity to make that claim in the city gate in front of the elders, in front of the witnesses, and demand her brother-in-law to marry her. If he refused to do so, Deuteronomy says that she's allowed to spit in his face and he is to carry the shame of that because he was not willing to carry on the name of his deceased brother. Remember that from last week. In this situation, Boaz, remember, uh, as a more distant relative, wasn't obligated by the law to marry Ruth. But he was within the circle of the relative redeemer. What he would have done would have been voluntary for her, not under the law. But still there would have been societal pressure if she would have brought this to him and publicly in front of everyone. It would have been uncomfortable. So Ruth approached him privately at night. And then she would extend to him the latitude to decide whether he wanted to or not. She was going to allow it to be his choice. She wasn't going to put him on the spot. In fact, this was really brilliantly designed to avoid any stigma at all being attached to Ruth or Boaz, regardless of what his decision was going to be. She's effectively pleading for a marriage proposal here. Proposal. That is what she is doing. Does anybody like getting rejected for that? Publicly? When we watch television and they have these bloopers and they have all these situations where there are proposals because we marvel at this, really. And you end up seeing someone who's on film and either they've, the, the unsuspecting bride has been tricked into attending an event with a whole bunch of people present 
And the husband who wasn't sure whether, or the, the potential husband who wasn't sure of whether she really wanted to accept or not, is going to bring this all public, and he's going to drop down to one knee, put some pressure in a situation. Will you marry me? Doesn't make it very easy to say no, does it? If you're not sure what the other person's going to say, Ruth doesn't know what he's going to say. So she isn't going to put him in that situation. She's going to have the decency to give him the latitude to divide, decide for himself whether or not he was going to respond affirmative. Then you'll want to pay special attention to verse 8. It happened in the middle of the night that a man, that the man Boaz, was startled, he bent forward, and behold, a woman was lying at his feet. He said, Who are you? It's dark. She's laying down. And she answered, I am Ruth, your maid. He sits up, finds Ruth lying at his feet. She's offering herself as a servant to him. What's young Ruth's request? As that text continues. It says, so spread your covering over your maid, for you are a close relative. You are a redeeming relative. She reminds Boaz, he's the kinsman redeemer, and she asks him politely to spread his covering over her to symbolize his willingness to redeem her by entering into that covenant marriage relationship. That's what she's asking him to do. The words that she uses here, that's why I want you to pay attention, they're very charming and illuminating to this text. You remember... Boaz's first prayer for her as he saw her in the field. Two months previous to this time now, she had shown up. This is the first occasion they had ever met. And he petitioned God and prayed for her in chapter 2. This is what he said in verse 12. May the Lord reward your work and your wages be full from the Lord, Ruth, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. Boaz commanded, commended her and then praised her because she sought refuge under the wings of the Lord. Well, take this for whatever you feel it's worth. But as I look at the, her selection of words, and then I reflect at her vulnerable state and the tenderness of this scene, I believe Ruth's response to Boaz in verse 9 may be one of the most romantic lines in all of Scripture. I really do. The term Ruth, uh, the term which youth, Ruth uses, which is translated into the English uh, as covering or skirt, that term there, it's the same term that, that Boaz used for God's wings back in chapter 2. And this word wing, it's not the typical Hebrew word for covering or garment. It's an alternate word. It's not the typical one they would have used. The Jews had other common words for covering and skirt. But in her response, Ruth selects Boaz's terminology from his first prayer for her. So as Boaz set up and he awoke and he looked down and he sees her before she raises her face, he asks, who are you? Essentially, Ruth answers him. She turns up in humility and gentleness and she says, I am Ruth, your maidservant. Take me under your wing. Spread your wing over me, Boaz. 
How could a man of God, who had previously commended her for seeking wings or refuge under the wings of the Lord, now turn away from her and deny her as she's seeking refuge under him? The answer is he can't. And he wouldn't. And in effect, he becomes the answer to his own prayer. Boaz once again responds with a blessing. He says in verse 10, Then Boaz said, May you be blessed of the Lord, my daughter. You have shown your last kindness to be better than the first by not going after young men, whether rich or poor. She'd been gaining a good reputation among the workers in Boaz's field. Since she was herself uh, young, she had converted to Judaism, she could have pursued boys. She favored a man. Her first kindness was demonstrated towards Naomi by vowing to care for her, never be separated from Naomi, even into her old age. Now her last kindness, Boaz knows, is even greater. She's presented herself to serve Boaz for the remainder of his life. He doesn't make her wait for an answer. Verse 11, Now my daughter, do not fear. Immediately relieves her anxiety. Whether it's a yes or no, a man of God doesn't cook a woman for several weeks or several months or several years to give an answer whether he's interested in her especially when she's in a vulnerable position. But in this occasion, the answer is yes. And he tells her, I will do for you whatever you ask. For all my people in the city know that you're a woman of excellence. Boaz approves. Ruth is a great catch. The terminology here to describe her, woman of excellence It's identical to the words used to specify the virtuous woman in Proverbs 31. That reads, an excellent wife, a woman of excellence, an excellent wife, who can find her? For her worth is far above jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not evil all the days of her life. That's the virtuous woman. Boaz just found himself one. He says, all my people in the city know about you. He mentions a reputation among his people, all my people. She'd been working close to Boaz, his entire crew, for two months. He knows they'd encourage, her, encourage him to marry Ruth. And next we'll get to observe a little bit of the shrewdness of Boaz here. He needs, needs to make this transaction happen. He needs to make it happen pretty quick. He knows he's got a really great opportunity. She's young, hardworking, loyal, employed by the implied by the context is probably quite attractive. And since she's been working in his fields for a steady two months, his people know better than anyone else in town. He says, my people that are in the city know. He's got the corner on the market. He's going to move before maybe another relative finds out about her. Also notice, though, he refuses to circumvent the law by cutting out an even closer relative without asking. In verse 13, Now it is true, 
I am a close relative. However, there is a relative closer than I. Boaz is not going to marry her and then later on have a closer relative come to him and make claim against him and raise allegations either toward the purchase of Naomi's land that is going to come into play here shortly or redeeming the younger Ruth. His concern for following God's will surpasses his desire of fulfilling his own wants quickly. So he instructs her. He says, remain this night, and when morning comes, if he'll redeem you, good. Let him redeem you. But if he does not wish to redeem you, then I will redeem you, as the Lord lives. Then he instructs her to lie down until morning. Boaz is going to do the whole thing by the book. He's also going to move very quickly. And he's going to let the chips fall where they may. We're going to find out in chapter 4. He's going to put the squeeze on the other closest relative. He's going to make him decide fast. For tonight, however, he's not letting Ruth walk home alone. Not in the dark, not late at night. That would be hazardous for him to send her out like that. Instead, he relieves her anxiety says, I'm going to do everything I can as the Lord lives. He's given a vow, the same vow Elijah gave. As the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Makes, him a, makes her a solemn promise. He tells her to wait until early morning when you can get up and return home safely. Perhaps the most impressive facet of this entire passage that we're studying today. I know it's a lot of narrative information. We're kind of seeing how things work out. This is where the tension of this story now is released. We're going to see how it's fulfilled coming up uh, next week and the week after. But what's impressive here, as I look at that, is that when you and I pronounce a blessing on someone while invoking God's name, that's a prayer. God bless you. May God richly bless you. May the Lord meet your need. Well, how did James say it? Go in peace, be warm and be filled. When we say that, we're either meaning what we're saying, or if it's a cliche, we're on the edge of taking the Lord's name in vain. Do we really mean what we say when we pray? I believe, and, and this is myself included, we're not nearly careful enough with our prayers. We're very concerned about the breadth of our prayers. Not real concerned about the depth of our prayers. We're very concerned that, that posted up on the wall, we've got a really, really long list that we can pray about. But we don't emotionally engage in those important priority items where there's needs involved. When Naomi prayed in chapter 1 for the widow Ruth, she said, Go, return to your mother. Who will arrange another wedding? Essentially. Return to your mother. She'll arrange a wedding. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. May the Lord grant that you may find rest in the house of a new husband. In the form of a blessing, that's a prayer. That her mother would find a new husband for her. Who does God use to answer that prayer of Naomi? Naomi. 
And then in, in chapter three, when Boaz or chapter excuse me, when Boaz prayed in chapter two for Ruth, we've touched on this already. May the Lord reward your work. May your wages be full from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you've come to seek refuge. Again, who is God using to answer that prayer? Boaz. In the modern church, we need to be concerned that we're not always praying for someone else to answer a need. Let's just get together and pray about this, that someone will answer it. Somewhere, somehow, some side of the universe, someone will come in and answer our prayer. When it could be that God's saying, you know what? You've got the resources to meet that need. You're the one who God wants to use to answer that prayer. First John 3.16 says this, We know love by this, that he laid his life down for us. And we ought to lay, our, lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. So a significant purpose to prayer is to search our hearts and find out if we're the ones who can meet that need. God's designed humanity in that way. How do we do that? Ephesians 3, verse 20 says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. The power that works within us is not some kind of mystical, invisible energy. In some circles, people become to think that when they pray, they're emitting or directing some kind of powerful beam. That if I pray here, I can make it happen through an energy. That's one of the latest things going. It's almost like Superman's laser projecting from his eye or something, and you can go and you can cut through metal, or you can do these things with an energy source. When Ephesians was written, they had no concept of lasers or energy beams or radar or any of that. When we're exhorted to act in this manner, it's not that we have some kind of mystical power over events. God has power over events. When that verse says, according to the power that works within us, it very much describes the capacity, the ability that we have within us, that was within our control. We've got the power, we've got the influence, it resides in our intellect, it resides in our action, in our hands, and in our feet. That's how power works within us. It causes us to act and fill the role. It wouldn't be a lot different than a plow horse, a big Belgian plow horse. When you say he has the power within him to pull that plow, it is the power, the ability to work. It's not that he somehow can stand over on this side and make that plow move on the other side. 
I would say ultimately with sinful nature that we fight, that we struggle against every single one of us. The fact that we're able to use our resources, use our hands to help, use our words to support. In order to do that for someone else, without seeking the praise for it ourselves, doing something without wanting everybody to notice, in order to do that to direct to God, that God be the glory, that Christ receive all of the praise, in order to do that and overcome the sinful nature and actually follow through on using that power, that's supernatural. That is only empowered by the Holy Spirit who lives within us that we can do something selfless in that manner. So, in this story of Ruth, we see people are praying. They're willing to be used by God to answer the prayers of others. Um, Everyone in the picture now is on the verge of experiencing a fuller harvest as they bring in the sheaves. you got Naomi that is moving towards a possible future son-in-law who has the ability to care for her into her old age financially. you got Ruth, who's drawing near to a prized husband. We'll see how that works out going forward. And then we got Boaz, who's about to land himself a trophy wife. It's beginning to look like it's going to be a very full harvest for everybody. First things first. Boaz is going to have to come up find a way to put squeeze on that cousin that he has. We'll learn about that going forward. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I know when I pray, a lot of times I'm praying to check the box to know that I've prayed. Lord, to say that I've done that, I've got this long list, I've accomplished this list. Lord, I wish that you would teach us to pray. I wish you'd teach us to pray for those who are ailing, Lord, for those who are hungry, Lord, for those who lack clothing, Lord, for those who just need an encouraging word that we would pray in the spirit so we could sense that Lord that we would also be reading the sword of the spirit which is the word which convicts us Lord and shows us how to act teaches us how to honor you Lord I pray that as we seek to honor you at our church Lord God if you are willing that you would grow this church that we'd be one that reaches the community, Lord, to act not only in word, but also in deed. Lord, I pray for everyone here today that has come together to worship, Lord, that if there's anyone here that that doesn't know Jesus Christ as Savior, that, Lord, they'd understand their sinfulness, their separatedness from you, Lord, that they'd understand that they need to know the way to be redeemed so that they can avoid certain judgment, Lord. Lord, I pray that you'll convict them, convict them to ask the questions about how to be saved, Lord, and I would pray that I, myself included, would be there willing to give them the answers, willing to pray with them, willing to 
give them hope, Lord God, and meet a need if I'm able. Lord, bless us now as we go forth today. Help us to honor you in everything we do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.